and welcome to the Poplar PropCast. I'm your host, Justin Lebernet, and we are going to be talking about the housing theory of everything. That sounds overblown, it sounds kind of fatuous, and it sits in that space of exaggeration that's pretty common right now. If you look at everything theories, they're kind of presumptuous. They usually are discussed in physics when they're trying to go... We are trying to find the one explanation that explains everything. Because they're trying to do that, they tend to have um, a lot of challenges in getting down to that level of detail. And so that theory of everything gets adopted to talk about things that aren't necessarily a theory of everything. They're a theory of uh, a part, or they're a theory that explains. It's kind of this misuse of the word. It's very similar to when you hear Instagram food or food shows referred to as food porn or a trip to Target. Oh, that's my shopping addiction. Those, those are not really the way that you use those two words, but it happens. So, to my surprise, I came across an article that I originally saw in The Atlantic, and I tracked it back to the original source and kind of read some other stuff on it. And it was these three authors, John Myers, Ben Southwood, and Sam Bowman. Well, they're not authors. They have pretty um, robust resumes. Sam Bowman's an editor at Works in Progress, but he's also the director of competition policy at the International Center for Law and Economics, a guy named John Myers. He's a co-founder of the London Yimby and Yimby Alliance campaigns in the UK. Yimby is yes in my backyard. And then the third guy is Ben Southwood. He's an editor at Works in Progress and was most recently head of housing, transport, and urban space at Policy Exchange. He's got two grants that came in from Emergent Ventures. So these are three guys that are very active in the space and very aware of what's happening in the space. It makes them really good guys to kind of listen to about this stuff. They put out this article a, a while ago, actually. They put it out in September of 2021. So it was, you know, pretty early on in the pandemic. And it's been getting traction in some of the housing and economic circles, but I didn't catch it until a recent article came out in The Atlantic. And that's, you know, that's on me. Um, but they looked at all these problems in the Western world. So they're looking at uh, levels of fertility, chronic illness, inequality, climate, productivity, economics, wage growth. And they look at all these problems and they go back to how much are these related to the cost to rent an apartment, houses, buy a home. And to get an idea of how this works, and this is a very germane kind of description, the lady from the Atlantic article, Annie Lowry, explains it by way of bagels to quote, this is her speaking, I have a gripe about San Francisco. The bagel stores open too late. My neighborhood, Bernal Heights, has a number of excellent purveyors. The tasty bagel maca opens at 8.30 a.m. on the weekends, at which point my sons have been up shrieking and destroying things for three hours. Chicken Dog, which sells the best salt bagel I have had in California, opens at the downright brunchish hour at 9 a.m. I come from the bagel belt, to go up to term. In my mind, bagel shops open at 6 a.m. That's standard. That's how it works. You should be able to feel caffeinated and carb-loaded at 6.03 a.m. every day of the year, including Christmas. But not here in the Bay Area, and the housing shortage is to blame. End quote. So she then discusses how the stock of housing doesn't keep up with the increase in jobs. And that means that few families can afford to live there and shoulder childcare costs. So to continue the quote... San Francisco has the smallest share of kids of any major American city, meaning a lower share of parents, meaning not a lot of people who might be up at 5.51 a.m. on a Sunday morning ready to get a bagel. And that's her argument. It's a really, it's got a lot of 
kind of anecdotal pieces that are really fun to think about, right? So it's fun to kind of rag on problems in San Francisco just because they do so well and it's so cool looking to live there and it's all idealized. So whenever it gets taken down a peg, it's just fun. But then that underlying piece that, well, there's not families because families can't afford to live there. It's so focused on trying to stay what it was that it's not letting itself grow to be what it could be. Like these little germs are in there. And her discussion of this, it's an expansion of this housing theory of everything. And it's that theory that these three guys put together in that Works in Progress article in September of 2021. It was six months or so of COVID isolation, and they were watching the housing market ignore everyone's expectations. They looked at the idea of a resource location restriction for housing, and their argument to start goes like this, and this is from the Works in Progress article. Where you live affects nearly everything about your life. Where you work, how you spend time off, who your friends and neighbors are, how many kids you can have and when, and even how often you get sick. Most people's most valuable asset is, by far, their own home. And housing is so important for the overall economy because it determines the location and supply of the most important resource of all, people, end quote. That's crazy. Because what they're doing is they're saying, yeah, we're looking at housing as this other side of the economy. We're looking at it as a supply and demand problem. We're looking at it as a piece that's just kind of a good that you can just kind of buy and trade. And their argument is that it's not just that. It has a profound effect on work because it controls people, which are not just the resource for the economy as workers, but they're the resource for the economy in spending. So... Looking at the COVID issue, when work was no longer tied to location, at least for a while, there's this immense pressure release where all of a sudden there's shifts that happen across the country. We've all seen them. We've all seen the don't California my Texas kind of stuff and the migrations to Idaho and the big sales that have been happening in California and New York with people moving further out of the cities. That is coupled with 40 years of restricted housing development. So you end up with overpriced, desirable housing. But this housing theory of everything isn't just about housing. And they discuss this in detail in the article. They say better jobs drive up the price of housing when it's difficult to build more. But that works both ways. When housing is scarce in high productivity areas, some people are priced out of the area together altogether so they can't move within range of better jobs. A breaking from the quote, this is really interesting because they're switching it to the productivity side. Like if you look at the economy as an engine and you're trying to maximize the productivity of this engine, there are certain points at which parts of the engine aren't working as efficiently. And instead of fixing them, we go, well, this we'll just have to spend more money in gas. We're going to have to drive in certain ways so that we maximize it instead of fixing the underlying problem. So going back into this argument they're making... This range problem means that many people are working in less productive jobs than they could if it was easier for them to move to more productive places. Their wages and productivity are lower, and it's harder for highly productive businesses to hire them. 
That means people who do get to live in these high productivity places are less productive than they could be because they are less able to combine their skills with the complementary skills of the people who have been priced out. As a result, many businesses end up leaving highly skilled staff without assistance, spending their time on work that could be done by others, lowering the time they can spend on the tasks they're best at. This happens in people's private lives too. People spend hours trying to fix their leaky pipes instead of calling a plumber because the price of plumbers has risen to cover the cost for plumbers to live there. So you see how it has this cycle where it just feeds itself. It goes, okay, now uh, it's it's gone up in price so minimum wage workers can't work here. Okay, well, there are essential workers where you need to have nurses, you need to have plumbers, you need to have healthcare, but they're more expensive because to get them to be able to live there, you have to pay them more. And for them to get paid more, they have to charge you more. And so this cycle sits underneath it and kind of in this feedback loop. So that relocation of a resource is is really interesting when you talk about in terms of things like a plumber, a programmer, a barista. So there are caveats, right? This This isn't just a, hey, everybody should move to a bigger city and the bigger city, the better. I mean, Mexico City is larger than Berlin, but a program is going to make more money in Berlin. The likelihood of that being a reasonable choice, however, is scarce. There's this purely market-based question that's not a true question. People move for family, for school, for jobs, and for perceived lives. Those perceptions function in an emotional space. This holds us back from becoming purely chatbots and machinery, but it exposes us to systemic calculations that we cannot see. This is the underlying thing that kind of churns that engine and that feedback loop. Even that density question where the holdback of building multifamily or denser housing is restricted by emotion. NIMBYism, the idea of not in my backyard, is usually discussed as this capitalist piece where people are trying to maintain the value of their housing purchase. But it's also related to this conservative and safe nature of home, where we want things to be stable, consistent, and safe. That's the place where we know what to expect. We feel comfortable in bringing somebody there. We have our, our weddings there. Children are born. These, we, we binge all of The Last of Us. We read the news. Some of us work at home. But that space, you want what you invested in. And when it changes over 20, 30, 40 years, you can start to understand why people get a little antsy and go, I, I just want it to be what I bought. But that's problematic, and that's an emotional response. That's not a capitalistic response. So the authors look at these cities, and they reflect on these studies, and and they notice this about location and density. Um, By historical and global standards, today's most successful cities in America and other Western countries are astonishingly sparsely populated and sprawling. Hausman's Paris, Gaudi's Barcelona, and the Georgian and Victorian areas of London are much more densely populated than nearly every square mile of the Bay Area and most of the New York City metro area other than Manhattan. The main cause of this is regulations that ban buildings that make better use of the land. Economists Giles Deranton and Diego Puga judge that if New York allowed more of the sorts of densities that were more common historically, rents and house prices would fall towards construction costs and the city would at least double in population, over 40 million people. Similar things would happen to the Bay Area, Boston, Los Angeles, and U.S. superstar cities if higher densities were allowed. This could mean those places looking more like Paris or Barcelona, both of which are incredibly dense these days. So that's that's their quote from the article again. But 
the density argument pushes for that mix of people that blending and reinforcing and germination of new ones while also supporting each other's ideas and having this space to push back and forth on each other. So I'm in Vegas and somebody who was doing this and I don't I don't think he was thinking of the housing theory of everything. In a way he kind of was. But there was a guy named Tony Shea. Tony Shea here in Vegas was running Zappos, the shoe store online that would deliver shoes. Um, they they're really good with customer service. They're really good at shipping and all the things that are good for a shoe store. They were doing well enough that they got bought by Amazon. When they got bought by Amazon, uh, Bezos basically said, Tony, this is perfect. Keep running it the way you're running it. Where do you want your headquarters? And he goes, I envision a new tech hub. I envision a place where people can do what I was able to do in the Bay Area. I, I think that we can do it here in Vegas. And so what he did is he moved the Zappos headquarters into the old courthouse down on Fremont Street or near Fremont Street. And then he took and he dumped tons of the money that he made from the deal into buying up kind of ratchet property along there. It was it was rough down there. People went to the Flamingo Tropicana area of the strip more than they went to the Fremont area of the strip because Fremont was kind of run down. But with Tony coming in with Zappos and with his funding, he went, we need people here and we need a density where you see people often enough and you hear people talking about what they like, care about, and want to do enough that eventually those synergies pop up and you have these new things arise out of it. So what he really wanted was a couple more tech companies to come into there. And the way he kind of supported that was putting more and more walking stuff. Uh, he built a, because of building code restrictions, he built a container park that's just stacks of containers that he could put together real quick. And it's a cool little outdoor music venue and barbecue and little shops. And then he started putting together funds so that people that wanted to open small businesses, restaurants, clubs down in that area could. And there's coffee shops, hotels, there's all kinds of neat stuff down there now. And he passed, unfortunately, but this is the kind of thing where he's saying, Let's increase the density so people can just move here, not need a car, get their groceries, live right on top of each other, and have cool ideas. It was really cool. I, I really dig going down there still. If you're in Vegas, try and make a trip down to Container Park, and then you can walk down Fremont and look at the big TV overhead if you want. But it's it's a really cool place. There's some cool articles on it on the internet. But this is this is that idea. This is that idea that... If you have that density close to the housing, people stay in that density. So this idea about synergy, it even ties back to the call by owners and operators that want to bring workers back to the office. But in a lot of cases, to be able to do so requires affordable living spaces to grant the option of being able to afford more by moving. Like just saying, yep, we are, you know, you can live anywhere and just go because it's COVID. And people are making these decisions for two years that they're finally able to make and balance those things. But I've noticed in some of the people I've talked to, so this is anecdotal, but people miss those little interactions. They're more productive because they're just sitting there hammering work, but they feel a little bit less connected to work. And they don't have those random conversations that turn into a new project. So once they've moved and once they've established these new lives, then to ask them to come back in some ways, it's, it's like a pay cut. So 
innovation and collaboration is desired. That's something that you can get from having this stack of people kind of living on top of each other, right? So in that, the article says that the Bay Area, including Silicon Valley and San Francisco, which are a population of seven and a half million, it's played host to more tech startups growing to valuations of more than a billion dollars in the entirety of Europe, which has 750 million people put together. 10 U.S. cities in 2007 produced 70% of the total patents related to computer science and 79% of the total patents around semiconductors, with less than 10% of America's population. It's crazy how productive this is. And it's also crazy how it just kind of sits in these spots. And to have access to that kind of innovation and ability is to move there. It's harder to access when you're not there. It's even harder to access and get to there. And we'll talk about that in a minute um, if you're in a place that is somewhat depressed. These are not wholly new ideas. In 1879, there was a text called Progress and Poverty and a guy named Henry George, he was looking at it and he was looking at taxing based on land value, but he wasn't just saying, let's set up a percentage of the value of the land and the improvements on the land and that's what you get taxed on. He was talking about location and proximity to parks, sewers, education, work, so that you could share in what he called the material progress of the city. And the way to do that was to go, look, the city's paying for these things that make your home more valuable. Let's figure out how to share your success with the people that are helping make it possible. And this isn't, this is community, not communism. Here's a quote from Progress and Property. This is fun because it's an 1879 thing. So it's, it sounds weird. It has that voice of the 1800s. Henry George. But just as such a community realizes the conditions which all civilized communities are striving for and advances in the scale of material progress, just as closer settlement and a more intimate connection with the rest of the world and greater utilization of labor-saving machinery make possible greater economies in production and exchange and wealth in consequence increases, not merely in the aggregate, but in proportion to population, so does poverty take a darker aspect. Some get an infinitely better and easier living, but others find it hard to get a living at all. The tramp comes with the locomotive, and almshouses and prisons are as surely the marks of material progress as our costly dwellings, rich warehouses, and magnificent churches. Upon streets lighted with gas and patrolled by uniformed policemen, beggars wait for the passerby, and in the shadow of college and library and museum are gathering the more hideous and fiercer vandals of whom Macaulay prophesied. So he's looking in 1879 at wealth inequality in cities and saying all of this migration, all these people chasing this valuation, chase it, get there, and that draw pulls so many people in that you can't get the money properly distributed, so he pushes for taxing. So he suggested that, uh, and this is Henry George again, in varying degrees is this true of all landholders. Many landholders are laborers of one sort or another. And it would be hard to find a landowner, not a laborer, who is not also a capitalist. While the general rule is that the larger the landowner, the greater the capitalist. So true is this, that in common thought the characters are confounded. Thus to put all taxes on the value of land, while it would be to largely reduce all great fortunes, would in no case leave the rich man penniless. 
The Duke of Westminster, who owns a considerable part of the site of London, is probably the richest landowner in the world. To take all his ground rents by taxation would reduce his enormous income, but would still leave him his buildings and all the income from them, and doubtless much personal property in various other shapes. He would still have all he could by any possibility enjoy, and a much better state of society is which to enjoy it. This is not a redistribution scheme. This is not a seize the goods of the rich and distribute it. It's a results and support question. And it goes to this housing theory of everything. It also speaks to what matter of life an individual is allowed to expect. To go back to the original article, the housing theory of everything, people who cannot earn top salaries are unable to move to high income cities at all. Consider a cleaner living in Alabama. In 1960, they could move to New York City and earn wages 84% higher and still end up with 70% higher income after rent. In 2010, they could move to New York City and became 28% more productive and earn a wage 28% higher, reduce the surplus of workers back home, letting them demand higher pay. But since housing costs are so much higher, the net earnings and living standards of someone like this would fall if they moved today and wouldn't be worth it. The same would be true for plumbers, receptionists, and other professions that allow other people to specialize at what they're best at and minimize the time they spend on things like DIY and answering the phone. By contrast, top lawyers get wage boosts that are still sufficiently higher to justify a move in both 1960 and 2010, even after the higher rents they'll have to pay. This affects income growth in poorer states. Between 1880 and 1980, poor U.S. states caught up with the richest ones at a rate of about 2% per year. Since then, this rate of convergence has halved to less than 1% per year. So that's, that's crazy, because it's not saying we need to try and figure out how to take care of these, these giantly wealthy cities. It's saying that by trying to figure out how to make these wealthy cities more affordable to live in, we're going to boost the economy in the smaller areas. We're going to boost the economy in places because we'll be able to move the specialized workers who are good at that to a place where they're in high demand and have them see an increase in real wages. My grandfather did this in the 60s. He drove from Iowa out to L.A. chasing jobs. And he was able to do that. And he was it was necessary for him to do that. And he ended up in San Diego. And that's why I was born there. But because of the cost of living in San Diego... I don't live there now because of the cost of living in New York. I don't live there now. I've made conscious decision to be in a different location. I'm lucky enough to be, to have connections and privileged enough to be able to work from home so I can work for a national company that is, you know, doing amazing things all across the country, even in places that I can't afford to necessarily live. So that's kind of the housing for housing's sake and housing valuation and jobs. Those are all pure economics. One of the things that they discuss in the article that makes a ton of sense, and it's it's an economic question, but it's not just that. It's an emotional question. It's an incidence question. It's a life planning question. And that's children. And children are based on situations, or at least influenced by it. That's the minimal way you could say it uh, from the article. Across the developed world, the number of children that women actually have is well below the number they say they would like to have. According to a recent study, after controlling for other factors, a 10% rise in house prices was associated with a 1.3% 1 1 fall in overall births. 
Put together with the huge rises in housing costs we've seen over the past four decades, this implies a massive reduction in births across the Western world. There was a report that estimated that rises in the cost of UK housing between 1996 and 2014 may have led to 157,000 fewer children being born in that period alone. This has secondary repercussions besides just family building and family planning. And one of those is the labor pool. And as we expand and need more workers in the U.S., in the U.K., in anywhere, and we start to get antsy because we're not producing enough kids, and we start to mess with immigration, all of a sudden you have a secondary knock-on effect where housing has to do with immigration. Housing has to do with birth rates, which have to do with the size of... It just all is so intertwined, and that's really what these guys are getting at. So the housing theory of everything doesn't just mean housing is the root of everything, but it contributes to all of these things in such a fundamental way that it's this giant problem that's just aching for a resolution. They go on, and this is, this is crazy because they compare it to obesity and food. The housing, where we build it, how we build it, affects obesity. So they do a direct comparison between America and Japan because America's an easy target because our obesity rate was about 10% in the early 60s. It's about 35% today. In the same time frame, Japan started at around 5% and is around 5% today. What's different that leaves them so fundamentally stable in how their weights vary? There's two pieces of it that are often discussed is that they just eat fewer calories and the calories they do eat tend to be whole foods. And then they walk more than Americans. And both of these things are due to housing. Japan is, is really a hands-off kind of planning place. And so it allows for more densely packed urban environments where walking and biking can satisfy most travel and commute needs. In the U.S., we sprawl. We take land that could farm and directly produce, provide to the city, have an acre apiece. That means that food has to travel further and it's influenced the amount of processed food we produce and consume. Because by processing food, we can grow it in one place then ship it all over the place. Car use is a significant contributor to this. If you look across um, the mode of transport for travel to work in cities across the world, if you put, we'll put cycling, public transport, and walking together, okay? So Tokyo has around 15% that's cars, private motor vehicles. Everything else is walking, cycling, public. Osaka is about the same way. Paris is around 20% cars, everything else walking, cycling, public transport. Berlin, about 25%. Private motor vehicles, also about 25% walking. And then the rest is cycling, public transport. London, just under 40%. Private motor vehicles, a good 10% that's 10 to 20% that's walking, rest, cycling, public transport. And then if you take four US cities, Chicago, almost 80% private motor vehicles, LA, 80% private motor vehicles. Phoenix, Arizona, 85% private motor vehicles. And Houston's clicking over 90% of people are commuting in cars. So, quoting from the art. So, it's just this crazy different way of living. And that crazy different way of living is because of housing choices. And that's contributing to obesity, which means that we have more healthcare costs. So, it kind of stacks in this weird way to mess with everything. Quoting from the article, just to discuss like density of population, 
Far more Japanese than Americans experience this sort of city life. There's 23.7 million residents in North America's biggest metropolitan area, New York City, and these people are spread over 34,000 square kilometers. Only a small part of this is dense enough to sustain walking, cycling, and transit. By contrast, Tokyo metro area has a far larger population with 38.1 million people, four times more densely populated across only 8,500 square kilometers. Practically all of them can live car-optional lifestyles most of the time. Japan's second city, Osaka, has 19.3 million. More than 45% of the country's inhabitants live in the biggest two cities alone. By contrast, even at the most expansive definition, only around 12% of the U.S. population live in its biggest cities. That is staggering. And it's also a very different way to kind of put it together. I, I will add, and this is just caveats galore on this, because these are all interesting ideas to talk about. And this is just the beginning of kind of circumstantial research and evidence, but it's very compelling. I, I will add in there's cultural differences that are huge, too. In Japan, it's more of a collectivist culture where you do for the family, you do for the company, you do for the country. And here in the U.S., we tend to have a do for me, do for mine, <laughs> and then... I'll, I'll take the job and then I'll do that. It's, it's more independent. So that's, that's a little bit on obesity. And now we're going to into a weird one, and that's climate change. If you look at the numbers, areas that are densely populated emit less carbon per resident than less densely populated areas. Now, part of this is carbon being produced for the cities and other areas for processing food, oil, and goods. But it's also due to the less efficient sprawl. Insulation is better on collective buildings. HVAC units are better on collective buildings. Fewer cars is less pollution. If you can stack 100 people into a city block and they don't need cars, you're going to produce less carbon than 50 families in 50 single-family homes, each with two cars. Another pair of authors, Scott Sumner and Kelvin Erdman, argue that the housing bubble in 2000 to 2007 was not a bubble. It was the beginning of this big correction we've been seeing. It's the beginning of seeing the housing theory of everything. But they argue in their paper, because of the subprime mortgage crisis, there was a misdiagnosis of the housing value. It's not just a bubble. It's thinking that the valuation is coming from the easiness of getting money and not the necessity of being able to get housing. They point to supply and demand issues in the current run-up that appears to be a retaking of those gains without underlying bank shenanigans, but rather it's economic policy that allowed affordability, and so the prices may be accurate. There's an argument, too, for... It's just everything just keeps coming back. This is so many different ways of thinking this that are so crazy. There's an argument to be made that political and culture wars are, are housing-related, and this goes to NIMBY and YIMBY. Uh, it's a quote from the article. Many young people have had to delay forming families and often take poorly paid, insecure jobs that can barely cover rent and living costs as the price for living in culturally attractive cities. They see opportunity as limited and growth is barely perceptible. Meanwhile, older generations sitting on housing property worth many times what they paid and stuck in a zero-sum mindset often prioritize the protection of their own neighborhoods over the need to build more homes. Can you blame young people who resent that and the West's economic system itself when this is what it offers them? So the article kind of comes to an end without a real solution, but it does hit on that zero-sum game, and it says there are going to be ways to solve this, and they're not going to be underlying 
zero-sum solutions where it goes, you're wrong, you're right, you're this, you're that. They argue about an idea of pulling sideways in a tug of war. And this is the idea that policies that reduce this can happen without endangering either way of life or either way of behavior. We can find ways to build more housing that supports both points. And that's the stuff that's going to come up and really be effective as opposed to kind of pushing people deeper into their antagonistic spaces. So this whole article is worth reading. It's an exploration of the idea that housing is not, not an issue, but maybe the issue underlying a lot of other issues. And solving that issue would provide a relaxation of those other tensions, allowing for more room for growth, success, and productivity. You can find this article, we'll set a link to it, but you can find this article on worksinprogress.co. It's called The Housing Theory of Everything. The article in The Atlantic is called Everything is About the Housing Market. Definitely worth reading. And I, I don't really recommend that anybody go back and read uh, the stuff from um, Henry George. It's really interesting, but it's super wonky. It has that big floral way of writing that they did in the 1800s. It's fun to read little bits of, and it makes for great pull quotes, but it, it gets uh, tedious after a while. It kind of stays in the same vein. Um, so just to call out again for the, the authors of this, Sam Bowman's an editor at Works in Progress, the director of competition policy at the International Center for Law and Economics. John Myers, the co-founder of the London Yimby and Yimby Alliance campaigns in the UK. Ben Southwood is an editor at Works in Progress and was most recently head of housing, transport, and urban space at Policy Exchange, and he's a recipient of two grants from Emergent Ventures. Me, I'm Justin Libernet, and I just kind of talk about housing things on this podcast. So I am massively underqualified compared to these fine gentlemen whose shadow I am standing in and whose work I am just discussing. But man, it's fun to talk about. To dial it back to my employer, if you guys need property management services or want to talk about any possible opportunities that could arise in the property space, you can let us know at poplar.home slash pod. That's poplar.home slash pod. We are a tech-enabled property management company that makes owning and renting easy and fun. So much fun. Thanks for listening to the Poplar PropCast. We'll see you next week.